So there's an oat milk shortage. Really? Apparently. Like a like a national oat milk shortage? Supposedly, this is all hearsay based on, you know, the infinite facts of what you saw on Instagram. Normal, normal people's Instagram stories. Right. So. You know, the news. The news. Exactly. Um, Apparently, what I think is going on is that the people who decided to make oat milk didn't realize it was going to be quite so popular. And then mm. Starbucks came in and was like, we're going to make this fancy little oat milk drink. And everybody loved it. Mm-mm. Even normal milk drinkers. And yeah. so normal. You know, what is normal, normal anymore? <laughs> Cow milk drinkers. Still dairy, thought it was awesome. Dairy milk. Dairy milk. And, and I think that they just didn't anticipate the excitement over the oat milk. And so now they've run out. And need to make more everybody's all about that oat milk i liked it before it was cool i just want to throw that out there (laughs) don't gatekeep goat milk it's not goat milk it's oat milk (laughs) (laughs) well i'm gonna drink my cow milk coffee and pretend that that didn't happen (laughs) welcome to the act break podcast where we're talking about all things story from books to movies, shows, and probably other stuff too, we're chatting it out and trying to remember what it's like to actually have conversations with other human beings. Take a break from your creative endeavors and hang out with us. Have a little simulated human interaction. Because internet friends totally count. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm fine. Is that a question? Yeah. I feel like I always think that I'm like, oh, yeah, I get up in the morning. I'm good to go. And then podcast day comes. And we are an hour earlier than my brain is ready for. (laughs) But here I am. Here we are. (laughs) Ah, scheduling. Yeah. It's fine with me. I'm just like, man, I always expect me to be like, I'm going to be on fire by that time. Cracking wise. No. It's all right. Drink, drink, your, drink your coffee. Did you make yourself a latte? Yeah, I did. Yum. Yeah. I even got up early enough to make the Smithy one. Oh, that's nice. See, that must be my problem. I should have cut him out of the deal and then I'd be doing better. Because I would have drank my coffee that much sooner. Right. It's all his fault. The rest of this podcast is the Smithy's fault. <laughs> uh, that was really good. I just got to let it flow, you know? Because I'm like, yeah, having a topic is cool and all, but that's not really why I started the podcast. <laughs> we That's not really why we started the podcast. Oh, it's okay. You're allowed to say you, I, you. I don't know. This was uh, your idea. I just said goat milk for God's sake. <laughs> Goat milk is a thing, though. It so, is. I mean, I mean, it's not like I. It, I doubt they're having a shortage of that. No, Maybe people aren't. People aren't really as into it. It has a weird aftertaste. I love goat cheese. It's a little but goaty go- in the back. The, the, but the goat milk, it's a little goaty going down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> All right. So we're kind of starting mini series today where we pick and analyze a specific plot 
I'm saying plot because it's probably going to be a lot of movies, but I don't want to say it's not going to be books occasionally. True. I'm going to come up with like some kind of clever name for our series, but I haven't gotten that but far that's, yet. But that's for future Jamie to figure <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. More like, cash. Just ADR over it and like insert, drop it right here. Um, a more caffeinated so, Jamie will figure that out. Yeah, she's much better at her job than I am. I, I'm just, I just show up. I wait for her to come along behind me and clean up the mess. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. We're going to do lots of waxing poetic today. Uh, I'll try and keep it to a minimum. I make no such promises. Yes. Both Carly and I, in our respective homes, watched a movie this week. And that movie was Lucky Number Slevin. Which we recommended in our employee picks. And now we're going to just spend an entire episode waxing poetic about it today. I I think we both talked about it and then realized we hadn't watched it in a few years. That's exactly what happened. And we're like, you know what we should do. This is a wonderful excuse. To just watch it again and be reminded about why it's so good and carry on wondering why it wasn't more popular. Yeah. So I'm going to give a couple of facts about Lucky Number 11. It was released in 2006. It stars Bruce Willis, Josh Hartnett, Lucy Liu, Morgan Freeman, Ben Kingsley, and Stanley Tucci, to name a few. Uh, those are just like the the headliners. Yeah. So an all-star cast. Like Morgan Freeman, Ben Kingsley, and Bruce Willis. It's like, what? <laughs> That there are some movies that you just you just hear who's in it and you're like yeah I'll watch that yeah I don't I don't really need more information yeah I'm just I'm just gonna sit I'm down just, and watch it yes absolutely it is directed by Paul McGugan who also directed Push that oh. is an, also an undervalued movie with uh, Chris Evans and superpowers you know before Chris Evans was the cab mm-hmm. he also directed some episodes of sherlock the bbc oh, sherlock that's right. i remember a, seeing that. a study in pink the great game uh hounds of baskerville and he did victor frankenstein with james mcavoy and yeah. daniel radcliffe which i haven't I... seen and then i was like oh well, I love a whole bunch of his other work, so now I have to go back and see that. Yeah, as well. I haven't seen that either. I mean, I heard of it, but I didn't yeah. watch it, and I would love to see that. And I love James McAvoy. So. When I saw all the things that he's directed, I was like, why haven't people been giving him more movies? No I kidding. Mean, who knows what he's doing? Maybe he's doing something else completely, right. but I'm just saying. Yeah, true story. When I sat down to watch this, I was like, I should bring my notebook and make notes as I go. So all of my notes kind of go chronologically through the film uh, and that's observations and then also just like critiques because of course I've seen it before this would be a good point to say if you have not seen <laughs> lucky number 11 I highly suggest and this is the only time I would suggest you stop listening to the podcast <laughs> right now stop what you're doing go and watch it but immediately come back here don't walk run yeah, um, because it's a great movie, and we're only going to say spoilers. Yeah, oh, so, yeah, so many spoilers. I know. I'm like, let's do something and really limit our audience base. 
Yeah. <laughs> Let's make a whole episode where it really only applies to somebody who's seen this movie. I don't know. Some people don't care about spoilers, though. So Yeah, that's true. Which I feel like that's sad. Like, this especially is one where I think you should care. If you're not, like, you're the usual person that cares about spoilers, this is one time where I think it will... I don't think it'll lower your enjoyment of the movie, but it's such a enjoyable narrative to have it unfold because it's non-linear. So it just... Go watch it and then come back. Being a fan of film and storytelling, I don't say this about many things, but when the credits roll, I was like, I think that this movie might be perfect. (laughs) As we go, I'll I'll say some of the things on why, but I'm like, to me, so close to perfect that I don't even, I'm not even sure it's not. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I surprised myself with some of the things that I was able to like find. Um, I I hearkened back to my one film class, <laughs> and I was very proud of myself because like I'm not as much of like a film critic as you are. I have some really great observations here, and I just want to tell you right now, kind of want to pat myself on the back. Um, movies like this are why I look for meaning and symbolism in every movie and television show I watch. And often to my detriment, I see things in patterns that were not intended, but have potential. And so then I always find myself wondering and analyzing, did they do that on purpose? Or is that just a coincidence that I happen to notice and link to something else? But I do that because of movies like this, where everything means something everything does mean something and that i think speaks highly of the director because he it's everything is on purpose no accidents in this in this movie yeah so during the opening sequence one of the reasons i enjoy this story so much is because they give you all of the information from the very start you see and are given every bit that you need to understand the story but all of it is completely with no context yeah so you don't know that yeah you're you're being given this information that your brain's picking up and not analyzing because it doesn't have the information to analyze it exactly but then by the end in retrospect or on a rewatch you realize that all the answers were right in front of you yeah the whole time And that is like the beauty of a well-told story because instead of not giving us information and then at the end pretending like you had given us the information, Mm. that doesn't cut it for me. Yeah, I find that really frustrating. Yeah, that setup at the beginning that gives you everything and then they feed you these pieces throughout to give you all of this backstory and tell you everything you need to know to figure this out but then they like they break it up in in this non-linear thing and sometimes you're being fed information that's false and so it's it's a it's a mystery and you have to figure it out right after the opener we come to the beginning of the the present day story the whole idea is a kansas city shuffle 
which of course by now you've all gone and watched the movie and then came back here. <laughs> so you know what that means. So, okay, it's like that they look left, you go right. That's the Kansas City Shuffle. Hmm. What we open on, the first line of that is, there was a time. I like Nick gives him the time and I really like that the opening is miscommunication like that's the very first thing that happens is somebody says something somebody else misinterprets it because that's kind of like a theme through the whole movie yes it is because I'm like I see patterns everywhere I'm like that was on purpose it's gotta be on purpose yes it was Absolutely. The themes of mistaken identity and misinterpretation and people's perception of what's happening runs throughout the whole thing. And it's it's the backbone, I think, of what's going on. It really is. I love that even though technically we know when it is, the whole aesthetic of the movie is a very nondescript time period because they're it's a gangster movie so everybody's dressed like really like stylized old gangsters so mm-hmm. it's it's almost has the way the wardrobe is it gives them like a, a 20s kind of vibe right but then all of the set design is very like um art it's art deco it's art deco but it it gives it 60s flair to it with yeah. like the color schemes and the bright bold patterns and so I I think that it's a really nice mix of yeah. elements which I think gives it the feeling of a nondescript time period because they meld so many things together yes. so it makes it feel timeless even though technically they do say dates in there you just don't feel like it matters very much and it gives that nostalgic old school gangster stuff yeah yeah I think that you put it perfectly where it's like that's kind of how if you want it to feel like a nondescript time you have to meld some things together honestly in a in a way the technology age has hurt storytelling whereas it's kind of hard to explain sometimes in movies that are made present day or set in present day, you're like, well, it's not very interesting to watch people talk on the phone. And it's not like if people can just call people, it makes everybody so available that um, it's not super helpful to storytelling sometimes. Yeah. So I like to just roll it back just a little bit farther so that it's not like everybody has a phone in their pocket. Yeah, me too. I, I think I naturally gravitate towards, I mean, even in like, a story that I'm writing right now I'm like just how do I come up with something that gets rid of phones yeah (laughs) so that I can make this work because it yeah if you can just call people you just figure it out yeah it's it might be convenient but it's not interesting there was there's a whole I'm obsessed with video essays uh, about storytelling or story analysis and I watched one that was about how phones and stuff have been used in media and one of the examples they use where they're like because it's really boring to just show a shot of a cell phone in a text feed so one of the things which is funny because it's done by this same director is Sherlock where he's like he didn't want to show the actual phone so he has the words like float through the screen and just finding a new way to present 
mm-hmm. that. Another great example of a, a movie that does this well is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Yes, yes. Finding a way, a new way to present it and then using it very limitingly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Bouncing back over to Lucky Number Slevin. This is also a movie that I feel like qualifies as a masterclass of foreshadowing. Mm, yes. The foreshadowing in it is superb. Yeah. And I think they do that with dialogue. They mm. do that with the way that they frame shots. They do that with um, visual cues. Mm-hmm. I Yeah. I completely yes. agree. It's It gives you lots of different clues. It is. Yeah. It is a perfect example of how to make everything mean more than one thing yeah I think that that's something that as writers at least I struggle with I I feel like you're pretty good at it actually but I feel like for me I struggle with making things serve more than one purpose yeah and I think the really good stories the ones that really stick with us whether we're reading or watching or whatever are the ones that make everything count there's no superfluous information and it can be books that have all of this stuff and and they do wax poetic but the reason why is because it serves the plot and I think that that's really awesome to watch people do that really well yes I enjoy that as well I have a question what do you feel the inciting incident of Lucky Number Slevin's plot is? Because I feel like oh. there are multiple inciting incidents. There really are. So from the perspective of having watched the movie, the inciting incident is obviously what happens to Slevin when he's a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, or really Slevin's the, family. It's Slevin's family. Yeah. yeah. Because he's the main character. And so that to me is the inciting incident. But thinking about it from the perspective of okay what would I think if I didn't know what the ending was Mm -hmm. then I would say when uh good cat snaps Nick's neck I'd be like that Mm. yeah I mean it's like it's super early but I'm like that's that's the thing that kicks us off because at first he's just telling us this story yeah and then all of a sudden he just kills this stranger and I'm like what is happening (laughs) so I, I feel like that if from the perspective of not knowing the overarching story, that would be my pick. But yeah, there are so many inciting incidents, and all of them are hits. Yes, Slevin's parents, and then Nick, then the two bookies, mm-hmm. then the boss's son. Yeah, and I'm like, man, <laughs> well, and this is like I, in the first 15 minutes, the body yeah, count is way high. is way high. So, which I think really sets you up for. I mean, it's like it's it's a it's a pretty brutal. Yeah. Um, but I think again with the economy of storytelling, everything builds on each other, and everything matters to the other thing that's going on. There's no pointless anything mm-hmm. in the story. I agree with you totally where it's like, okay, technically Slevin's family is, but there's a whole bunch of other things because that incites Slevin, but the bookies and the boss's son incite the boss and the rabbi. Yes. So, man, this story is so good. Yeah, it really (laughs) is. And I think um, kind of what we were talking about with MacGuffins, um, and how it all depends on whose perspective you're mm. looking at. 
is what shifts it. And I think if you have a story where if you analyze it from from this person's perspective and that person's perspective and that one, and it all still holds up, like, ooh, chills. Yes. Of excitement. Oh, so good. I, oh. I have a thing that I feel like it's also, we're just going to use the word masterclass a lot in this. <laughs> it's a masterclass on everything. Uh, giving information through flashbacks. So good. That's, I mean, that's how they reveal most of the information that you get in order to get you to the place of understanding what's happening. And they use it throughout the entire thing. And there's so many flashbacks. And normally you, you know, you think don't use too many flashbacks because it gets heavy handed and it's not. Yes. So in the flashbacks, I also noticed something. We get a flashback that is completely false narrative never happened and in that flashback it's black and white and it's it has these weird jump and I'm like and I I believe that that's because it was all a lie and it didn't actually happen yes (laughs) but Um, all the other flashbacks are in color yes that was actually one of my notes and I will say it's actually not completely black and white. It's just really oversaturated because mm. you can pick up little colors here and there, but it's really minimal. And you mean undersaturated? Is it undersaturated? Oversaturated? I don't know. When it's I'm- oversaturated, usually it's like really bright. Yeah. That. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. I, if I'm wrong, correct me. <laughs> um, that, what Jamie said. And um, I actually looked it up, the jerkiness. It's like, um, it's a certain frame rate. Mm-hmm. that makes it do that and I think that's really cool I was wondering there is one other flashback where it's a slower frame rate than the rest of the movie and that's um Lindsay's flashback when she's yeah. following good cat and so I was like well maybe I'm just over interpreting it because it's not completely smooth either but it definitely wasn't as jerky as Slevin's fake flashback correct and uh, her and they didn't change the color in that. They made yeah. it kind of like um, like glow a little bit. It was very warm feeling. Yeah. But I think, like you said, all of the misinformation is black and white or under saturated, whatever it is. Yeah. That's all of the false information. Yeah. And you look back over it. You're like, oh, they told us all of this was false. Yeah. They're, t- they're telling us without telling us. And yes. that's what we call show don't tell. Yes. This is one of the reasons why I love film. And it's one of the reasons why, even though I'm like trying to be an author of books, it's mostly because I don't want to live somewhere where I have to try and get into the industry. (laughs) (laughs) Because I love visual storytelling so much. And to do what they do at the beginning by showing us the ring and the shotgun, all these foreshadowing through visual storytelling, it is so hard to achieve that in print. Yes. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it is a hell of a lot harder than in a movie. (laughs) I would agree with that um, because visually in the movie, you're distracted. In the moment where you see the ring and the shotgun, you're not looking at the ring and the shotgun. Yeah. You're looking at Slevin's dad. Mm-hmm. Um, the director does a very great job with making you look left and he goes right. His <laughs> in, in all of the scenes visually, 
he's giving you clues and cues with his dialogue and with the things that he shows you, but he's doing it in such a way to distract you. He puts it there right in front of you, but you're not really looking at it because you're 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 looking left. Yeah, it's so uh, so clever. They also have done a beautiful job. Obviously, Slevin is our protagonist, and then this whole cast of characters, even down to their tertiary characters, mm-hmm. like Elvis and Slow, are mm-hmm. fantastic. It's so good. Um, I actually don't remember the the rabbis' henchmen's names. But <laughs> Saul and Abe. Ah, Saul and Abe. Like you said, everything is building on itself. So the first scene when Elvis and Slow come to pick up Nick Fisher, that is such an amazing scene because the conversation between them and Slevin sets the tone for all the conversations in the rest of the whole movie. The witty back and forth banter that's like trying to unravel a knot uh, to understand what we're trying to communicate to each other. Yeah. And it's just beautifully performed. I love it. I think that that's one of the things that's so enjoyable about it is the, the witty banter, the, the dialogue is so like glib and, but Mm -hmm. it's, but it's almost like it's self-aware, like they know that they're in a movie because they make <laughs> silly jokes like, um, you know, we're going to start the investigation. Lindsay, like Lucy Liu is just phenomenal in her lines are just amazing. Yeah. And the way that her character is, it's us. Like yeah, she's, she's us. The, she's the audience. She's, like the audience. She's the, of audience. the story. She's the representation of us. And I think it's it's so cool to... Because she's trying to figure it out and she's asking all these questions. And those are the questions that we have. Mm -hmm. And she is a key part of the story tone because she is so up and bright and happy. Because if you hear the plot of the movie, you would not expect that type of character to be in the movie at all. But she's just like a little shining star of of joy. (laughs) Yes. I think she elevates the movie because Slevin by himself yeah he's sarcastic he's uh funny but having her in it draws out this whole other layer of enjoyment and humor that we wouldn't have without her yeah and it also brings a whole another level of deception that they maybe didn't plan for in their like they didn't expect to have to deal with this like nosy neighbor mm-hmm. kind of situation and she throws a, a wrench in things yes and it makes it of course more interesting to us as an audience member because then he's dealing with something else and he has an extra layer of concealment he has to keep over what's going yeah. on and we can't fully relate I mean we all I think I think if we're being honest we all kind of want revenge at some point in our lives, but we can't relate to that level yeah. of desire for revenge. Mm-hmm. And so she brings this whole relatable uh, quality to what's going on Yeah, that gets us, it draws us in further. All right. What else? What, what else you got? I also love that the lie and the mugging solves such an easy problem because in storytelling, sometimes you're like, well, that's a loophole. How do I solve that? Like 
why wouldn't he just show somebody his ID? Oops, he got mugged. Yep. <laughs> That's just like, con- it, it, and it's not too convenient. It's, it is convenient, but it's, it's not too convenient where you don't believe it. I think, yes, I think that that is so difficult to do in storytelling. You find yourself with a plot hole. Like later on and you're like, oh my gosh, what do I, what do I do to fix that? And then it's so hard to not be heavy handed in your fix where people notice it. Yes. The fact that they do not let him get dressed and they take him in the towel, a purple flower print towel is what he has to go and meet the boss in. It brings a level of vulnerability, but not only vulnerability, but where he comes off as completely harmless. He's not a threat. He's just some kid in a towel. (laughs) He's having a rough time and we all feel so sad for him. Yes. It's this like disarming thing where, Mm -hmm. of course, the boss is the boss and he's got his bodyguards and they're in his palace. So he's in charge. So it was always going to be that he was the one in the position of power, but they went so far as to put Slevin literally in a towel so he had no armor. Every little detail that like subconsciously just tells you like, this guy's not a threat. I'm not afraid of that guy in a flowery towel. (laughs) Yeah. It's this vulnerable guy and it's also the wrong guy. The mistaken identity element in it is also playing with uh, people and their perception and their maybe their unwillingness to be able to to see something that's right in front of them. Mm-hmm. And it, it plays with the idea that people can be blind to who others really are, even when the evidence is right in front of them. Yeah. It's a really fun thing that they play with. I mean, also kind of dark as well. I. They kind of go back and forth with that. That whole like first meeting, it's very interesting to notice the times Slevin chooses to correct that he is not Nick Fisher and the times he chooses to answer to the name Nick Fisher. So he's like really weaving this web of lies where he's like, well, I'm not Nick Fisher, but he'll respond to it and he'll not correct somebody because he's really wanting to pull them into this lie Mm -hmm. and because you've been told like well he's not Nick Fisher when he was with Lindsay so as an audience member the first time watching it you believe that yeah and so you don't notice that like oh well he's still kind of letting these people believe that he might be this guy especially with the rabbi yeah there's a there's some other things with the rabbi Slevin's walking this very narrow line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. That is part of, he's trying to keep people confused. And I think that that is a manifestation of the director trying to keep us confused. Yes. And that was actually, so it got really low scores from film critics, which I'm like, you guys understand. are idiots. I don't understand. But audience enjoyment. So I think all of the things that I looked up that, that were complained about are the things that are exact exactly on purpose like um too bright of colors and loud of patterns and all of these things it's all misdirection it's trying to keep you visually confused 
so that you won't look deeper than yeah. what's going actually going on. And Slevin's dialogue and the way that he does that back and forth and playing with words and messing with people and, and the, even the, the conversation with the boss, he walks in and thinks that the bodyguard is the boss. Yeah. And they have that whole back and forth about, oh, I didn't think that he was you or you were him. I thought that he was you. Yeah. All of it is so on purpose that I don't understand why it was critiqued poorly. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I wonder if that, if it came out today, what people yeah. would think about it. Because right. I feel like there have been more movies in recent years that are more stylized. And I feel like this was kind of, was there were of obviously time. a lot of movies that were stylized before this one. Right. But it, I just, yeah, I don't understand why it wasn't received better. I think it was just ahead of its time. I think that there are some movies that are just that way that I think that certain people just can't can't wrap their heads around it or they wanted something else and it wasn't that. And so that's why they rate it poorly, which I think is dumb. But yeah. that's my opinion. I'm thinking of a particular part after Slevin leaves, Mr. Goodcat comes out and that he's like, I have seen enough people that I know when somebody's lying and that boy's lying or not lying. He is not Nick Vischer. <laughs> That's the rabbi. Okay. Which is funny because the second before the rabbi said that, I had written down a note and said, I like that Mr. Goodcat never actually lies. Mm, yes. He does not lie to the rabbi. He says, me and the kid have some unfinished business. That is a true statement. He does yes. not lie to the rabbi because he knows that the rabbi will know if he's lying. <laughs> yes, people are sometimes unwilling to believe what is right in front of them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good cat told him they have business, <laughs> unfinished business, and they're not friends. And that's been a whole conversation. Like, we are not friends. Uh, I um, This whole note just says atorexia. <laughs> I know I was because I was hoping you would bring that up. I went to Google to find out. I'm pretty sure it's not a real thing. Oh, let's look it up. I've Googled it in the past. Yeah, you, you Google it. I don't think so. I mean, I'm I'm on Google. I'm on the Googles right now. <laughs> I mean, there is a definition on the free dictionary that says a state of freedom from emotional disturbance and anxiety, tranquility. So I think it's a word, but I don't necessarily think that it is an actual medical condition. Medical condition. I could be wrong and I might just be looking I in all the wrong places. I would not be surprised but, if it is only a word because of this movie. But I, hey, I mean, like if somebody listening knows one way or another, please let us know. Right. <laughs> As we go on, he meets the boss and then he goes back and he gets dressed and then he goes and meets the rabbi. I just want to say that like when you know what's happened, like the level of Slevin's patience is very impressive. Obviously, they've been working towards this for 20 years. So it's like he's not going to blow it after all that time. But these are the people that like killed my family. Yeah. And there's a um, there's a quote that Lindsay said uh, that when they're talking about probably when they're talking about Bond and it's the villain is most effective when you don't know what they look like. It's Slevin. Oh, my it's God. It's Slevin. But he was talking. But he was talking, <laughs> talking to, Lindsay to Lindsay when he said it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, because Slevin is like the villain. Like he's our protagonist, but to the people that he's about mm -hmm. to interact with, he's the villain. All of the conversation has meaning. 
Um, I want to discuss the rule of three. Ah. Did you notice that? Not so much that I made a note about it, but they they use it a lot. I mean, what they use it a what lot. What do you know? What did you notice about the rule of three? So, okay, so for anybody who doesn't know, the rule of three is um, events or characters introduced in threes are more humorous, satisfying, and engaging to an audience. Oh, okay. There's two different kinds of rule of three. Oh, okay. I didn't know what you were talking about. I was thinking about the the visual rule of three where your screen is divided into three sections. Okay. So they do that as well. But I know what you're talking about because they use that a yeah. lot in comedy. Yes, it is. It, it, it's in everything, like the really. Three Stooges and and all of that. That's kind of I think where it where it evolved from. And they use it in their dialogue a lot when he's talking about, oh, you know how bad things happen in threes, and then obviously he says four things, and she corrects him and said, "You said three things. You said this was your third mugging." Uh, Columbo says three clues, and I think the phone rings three times, mm-hmm. and then they frame the shots with. Um, the boss and the rabbi and Slevin and then they frame out like at the very end when Slevin's like standing over them looking down which also gives him that like the power over them and then when they pull in the henchmen they frame the shot where you can see all three of them in a certain way and it adds more emotional impact Mm. in whatever it is that they're trying to do in any given scene by framing out Three different. Yeah. I love the rule of three. They, I I yes. use the rule of three, and then my favorite thing to do is use the rule of three, but add two for comedic effect. Yeah. <laughs> Where and then there I've had go. a lot of people, not a lot of people. I've had one or two be like, usually you would just um, say three things, and I'm like, I agree, but I really like to, <laughs> I like to beat a dead horse because <laughs> it's super funny. <laughs> No horses are harmed in the making of my book. Say, uh, <laughs> oh, maybe not the best uh, turn of phrase. The only way that this podcast is going to make me happy is if, is if you get to say "beat a dead horse." If I'm myself, no, it's obviously true. I it's true. don't condone the beating of a dead horse. <laughs> it's I know. Sad that I, I have know. to say that. I, it's true. This might as well happen. <laughs> oh geez okay uh this is a slightly different note but along the same vein of uh, showing us foreshadowing is when they do hold back information they foreshadow that in a stylized sh- shot so you still mm-hmm. are giving being given the information it's not like they're 100 percent lying to you all the time so they either yeah. use it strange cuts or uh, awkward framing to mm-hmm. to cue your brain to tell you something is off. Yeah. They also do that with giving you clues as well. Um, like with the the watch and the baseball. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Slevin, he want, he holds his dad's watch. That's how he has his watch, even though his dad dies. Yeah. And he's the only person you see playing with a baseball yes in the entire movie. And so then then the bookie is killed with the fastball, and then when he goes to grab the book. You can't see his face, but you see the watch. Mm-hmm. And so you're maybe probably a bit overwhelmed by the fact that somebody just got killed with a fastball and there's blood everywhere. And so maybe you're not paying attention to the watch, but it's it's all there yeah. for you. 
And we're about to move into the climax, build to the climax of the story. And that's what I call the turn. And that turn comes when Slevin kills Itzhak. Yeah. Because from this point, you're like, well, you've been told Slevin's a normal guy. This is a case of mistaken identity. He's in over his head. And you're kind of like, well, what's he going to do? And then he actually kills Itzhak. Well, he's obviously not a normal guy. <laughs> He said, I'm not Nick Fisher, but he didn't tell us who he was instead, really. And so it just, everything turns on its head. And you'll notice that he tells the cops, I'm Slevin Calabra. He tells the boss, I'm not Nick Fisher. He never gives his name. And he Mm -mm. absolutely never says anything about his name to the rabbi. Because as we know, Mm -mm. Calabra is Hebrew. Yes. So he would obviously not want to give off that. So I'm like, I love that he doesn't, he doesn't tell them who he is. Like you said, he just, he never tells them who he is instead. In this movie, but to me as well, names are super, super important. I, me and my husband joke that I am a namer. Like if you've read The Name of the Wind, knowing the name of things is very, very important to me and my work. And this movie is one of those where it's like, if you know the true name of something, you really understand it. And nobody knows Slevin's true name, which is actually Henry. I, I completely agree. (laughs) It's okay. There it is. You completely agree with me. I do. I I do. And it is very important to me in my work as well. I will, a lot of the times when I hit a wall in my writing is because I'm not happy with the name of something. Mm -hmm. And it bothers me and I get hung up on it until I can find something that fits my narrative. Because for me, like, my names always have more meaning. Absolutely. When I... Uh, was plotting my recent whip that I'm about to start. Uh, I had I used placeholder names, but I didn't use names. I used uh, like the sister or the mm. coworker because mm-hmm. I know that names are so important to me that if I stopped to do that, it would take me forever. I really need to do that. I, I I've done that in one of my stories. I used placeholders of, um, but I used. Um, like an emotion because that was the emotion that I wanted to evoke with that name. And so I, I remember one specifically I put just in brackets fear and I was like, all right, I'll have to come. I'll have to revisit that later and find one that works for me. Yeah. I, I would literally used an entire work day to pick the name of my three main characters. And that's all I did. that day. <laughs> it's the creative process. You can't rush it. So back to lucky number 11 here. I adore the step-by-step progression of Slevin's wardrobe from a flowery towel to an expensive suit. Every step through the story, his wardrobe becomes increasingly refined and expensive. Refined, expensive, and more confident. Uh, And darker. Because by the end, he's wearing a black suit with a gray shirt. How opposite can you get a purple flower (laughs) towel? And then I started to wonder, who's the baddest bad guy of this movie? All of them are bad guys. They're all gangsters and assassins. 
So there's not really any technically good guys. Even though you wouldn't be like it like our protagonist was a kid. He's driven. This is a revenge story, but that doesn't make yeah. him a good guy. We're ro- yeah, we're rooting for him, but he's not a good guy. Um, I think it is the one who admits it. The rabbi. I also think it's the rabbi. He said, I'm a I'm a bad man because he is the one that caused the rift between them. That's exactly why I said that. Um, and hunted down the boss's wife yep. and uh, was going to kill his son. And um, so. Yep. I agree. I wrote the same thing down. I said, of all the bad guys in this bad guy story, the rabbi is the worst. Because he double-crossed his friend. Yeah. Um, Son of a gun. (laughs) (laughs) Because of all the things that we've stated, I feel like by the time you get to the end, the end is so earned. Because it's not a we get to the end and then we explain everything that happened. It doesn't feel like that. It's we get to the end and you finally, you personally finally have all the puzzle pieces to understand what happened, even though we gave them to you an hour and a half ago right you had it all and now it's come together and we've we've earned that <laughs> I think it's because they they set you up mentally for a mystery at the beginning and then they're slowly feeding you clues throughout and so you're working when you're watching this you're whether you're actively know that you're doing it or not your brain is trying to fit these pieces together so you've been working for this the whole time and i think that the one of the reasons it pays off in the end and it doesn't feel like oh now we're just going to explain everything is the way that they slow release the last bits of information it's not all of a sudden like now you have every single piece of information. There's these little revelations and the phone conversation. Um, I don't remember his the character's name, but Stanley Tucci's character mm. um, on the phone. And like we've already found out the stuff about the the boss. And we know now that Slevin is Henry and all of this stuff. But it's you're they don't just dump it in your lap yeah. at the end and go. Here it is. Yeah. So that's the, I think, really cinematically was a very good choice because what's happened is at the end, you have all the same frames. They, I think of all of the flashback footage, we only actually have one extra frame that we didn't get in the beginning. The only difference is the way those frames are cropped. It pulls out so you can finally see the faces of everybody involved. But it's the same frame. So it was the same information. Yes. The only extra frame is when young Slevin turns around to face Good Cat. Yes. I can think of multiple examples, but I'm not going to actually say what any of them are. But there are lots of times where stories try and do this where they're like, oh, this was the plan all along, or we've given you this information, but they show you frames and shots that they never showed you before. Yeah, so they didn't actually give you the information, whereas this movie does. At the end, it's more of they're just clarifying. Yeah. That's really all it is. It's not new. It's just a clarification. Yeah. You'll have to tell me the ones that you're thinking of later (laughs) we're that's the one thing uh, we're like we want to do what we want on our podcast but we don't really want to harp on 
Yeah, we don't want to bag on people. Uh, yeah. The I feel like I'm getting to the point where it's like a lot of my the rest of them are just observations that I really enjoy the fact that the whole story actually takes place in like three or four days. It's not a long story. Like the events Mm-mm. happen very quickly. Yeah. Um, which is like the culmination of 20 years, obviously. Right. There's not a lot of downtime, which is nice. I think that um, a lot of like when people are like plotting something or like they have a plan, they they give you you you're watching the prep work Mm -hmm. and then the and then the job, whatever it is, is done all at the end. And that's the climax. And granted, that is the climax of this, but you're not really getting the the prep work like all of it. It's a all of it is a con. Yeah. And so it's like you're getting to see that, but you're not watching all the years that Good Cat was training Henry Slevin to be able to do yes. this. Uh, another movie that a lot of these subjects bring up in my head is Ocean's Eleven. That's I, that was what I was kind of thinking with. Yeah, the, and I'm like, the and example I feel I like was, that's a a good example. They of they do something, but they do it so well. Execution is key, basically, yeah. that that if you can execute something well, you can get away with a lot. Uh, yeah. Ocean's Eleven still does where they give you the information up front without context, but not to the same level as Lucky Number Eleven. But it's similar. Yes. yes, I agree. And another great movie. Although it's like they do show us things they didn't show us at the end but like I said execution it's all about the execution yeah true story I think that that's just a good example of another movie where everything's done on purpose I very much enjoy Slevin's wrap-up when he's talking to he finally has the boss and the rabbi where he wants them and how he mentions that he could come and go as he pleases making himself look weak but he was never out of control with what was happening and i love that they even there's i believe when him and the boss play chess he mentions that slevin is a mouse and with good cat bad dog and they were thinking the whole time they thought he was a mouse they didn't know I'm like, I I enjoy the little touches. I didn't notice that, but I'm really glad you pointed it out because it's so true. Um, I really enjoy that whole dialogue when Slevin is playing chess because they they use the rule of three in that as well, where they frame out shots and they splice conversations together and it's all lead-ins to what the other person is saying to give double meaning to what's happening. So it it's um, another thing, like the rule of threes, it's mirroring. Yes. Oh, so one of the critiques um, that some of the critics had that I said is that um, that it was like the director was trying to do Pulp Fiction. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't make sense. The only thing that I could find when I looked at it was there is a watch link to it where um in in pulp fiction the um bruce willis's character has a watch and it belonged to his dead father and he has a a emotional attachment to it so to me i'm like okay that that's it but i don't if if anything i would say that's a nod but it's also not 
that original. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's like there's a nod. So I'm like, I'm not really sure why why that was such a thing, but I thought it was interesting. It's been a long time since I saw Pulp Fiction, but I'm gonna say that Pulp Fiction and Lucky Number Seven are nothing alike. <laughs> nothing alike. <laughs> right. Oh, that's too funny. The rest of my notes are kind of about cinematography and just my appreciation for it. Because in the last scene of Lindsay meeting Slevin in the terminal, I adore the fact that the entire crowd is in black, except for Lindsay and Slevin. It's um, just very visually pleasing to me. And it's... Once again, one of those things your brain maybe doesn't notice. It just glosses over it, but it it makes a very busy scene seem very focused. Yes. The cinematography and the editing on this movie. Like, by the end, I was like, I think that this movie might be perfect. (laughs) Yep. Oh, I do want to give a nod on the musical score Mm. as well. It is uh, Jay Ralph, and he is actually an Academy Award-winning composer. He's produced music for Grammy winners, symphony orchestras, and uh, apparently even um, the previous president, uh, Barack Obama. Oh, wow. So I think that's really cool. But he is, he's obviously very, very talented, and the music is great. Yes. Man, we've made it all the way to the end of my notes. Do you have any other? That was my last one. Oh. I wanted to just. we. Oh, my gosh. We are simpatico. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen Lucky Number Slevin at this point, I mean, now you kind of have. Uh, <laughs> I, I Even if we spoiled the whole thing for you, go watch it. And then if you disagree, you're wrong. I mean, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be happy to have a conversation no, about I, why you're wrong I would be happy to have a conversation with somebody with other opinions we are yeah. really excited to have more guests we don't really want to be in an echo chamber we just happen to have a lot of the same tastes so we'll uh, probably need to come up with something that we know we disagree on and do that Ooh, soon that would be good versus bum bum <laughs> probably be something star wars i was thinking that because we're very i think on the the last three we're very different opinions on the star wars i think so too yeah oh man that's gonna be have to do that that's all right and that's when jamie and carly stop being friends (laughs) i'll take the Uh, act and you can have the hope you enjoyed this podcast that'll be All right. Uh, Later. Good stuff. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Act Break Podcast. You can follow or subscribe on your podcast consumption program of choice. It's probably Apple or Spotify. But if you really want to help us out, please tell your friends. And we'll be back next week. Talk to you then, internet friends.